It's Tuesday, October 16th, and this is The Daily Dive. The intrigue surrounding the disappearance of Washington Post writer Jamal Khashoggi has deepened as reports say that Saudi officials are preparing a report to acknowledge his death was the result of an interrogation gone wrong, although that might be subject to change. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent for Politico, will join us to walk through Khashoggi's mysterious disappearance and why this has set off a diplomatic feud between Saudi Arabia and Turkey and bipartisan uproar in Congress. Next, the fight for the future of TV is on. While people are increasingly moving away from traditional TV and getting settled in with the likes of Netflix, Amazon, and other subscription services, more companies are looking to distribute video content through the internet. Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about what's in store for the future of TV and who the major players will be. Finally, as MoviePass continues its spiral down, movie ticket subscription service Cinemia is providing the technology for any theater to set up a subscription service and set up their own unique pricing plans for any style of movie showing. Jason Garasio, senior entertainment reporter at Business Insider, joins us for more options in the movie subscription game. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I've asked Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to immediately get on a plane, go to Saudi Arabia. The king firmly denied any knowledge of it. I, I don't want to get into his mind, but it sounded to me like maybe these could have been rogue killers. Who knows? Joining us now is Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent for Politico. We're going to be talking about this Washington Post reporter, Jamal Khashoggi. He is a a Saudi dissident. He's set off this big diplomatic feud now between Saudi Arabia and Turkey. President Trump has made comments about this. He disappeared on October 2nd, and nobody knows exactly what happened to him. People think that he was killed and dismembered even by members of the Saudi government at the orders of Prince Mohammed. So as the story starts off, he went to the consulate in Istanbul to get some documents. He had to prove that he was uh, getting a divorce so he could remarry his new wife in Turkey. She waited outside of the consulate for him, and then he never came back out. There's video that shows him walking in. There is nothing showing him walking out of there. That's where the story starts. What else do we know? How is this story developing? Jamal Khashoggi, he was an opinion writer, actually, for a contributor to the Washington Post opinion section. So I just want to be clear, like he wasn't a traditional reporter. But yeah, he had increasingly been really on the outs with the Saudi government, in particular the Crown Prince. So he also had a reputation, of course, as being a dissident and someone that had gotten under the Saudi Crown Prince's skin. And so, yeah, he, he actually had been very nervous about going to the consulate, but, you know, he wanted this document so that he could get remarried. And he went into the consulate, as he said, didn't come out. And people have ever since then been saying, what happened? And in the beginning, the Saudis said, he left, he's fine. But the Turks, through anonymous sources and intelligence officials uh, and the like, basically said that they had come to believe that he had been killed inside the consulate and possibly dismembered, that there was a 15-member Saudi team that had flown in basically within that same 24 hours because this was like a pre-scheduled appointment for him. So they knew he was coming and they came, these 15-member team came and then they they left and 
he never reappeared. And this all comes with the backdrop of increasing repression in Saudi Arabia, especially against anyone who speaks out against the changes or, or any initiatives that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been pursuing. Uh, and it's kind of strange because he's also been, this Crown Prince has been imposing some reforms that are, is very much being cheered by the West. He has tried to cultivate this reputation as a progressive, as a reformer in this deeply conservative Muslim country, but he's been coupling that with this very authoritarian, harsh crackdown on dissent. And this was one of the reasons that Jamal Khashoggi had grown very disillusioned with the conference and was writing columns attacking him. And so this seems to have upset the government. Now, of course, the latest reports are a bit different about where, where things are going, but we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure. Yeah, as you were saying, Khashoggi in his early writings was uh, very supportive, almost a go-between between a lot of journalists. And then when the crown prince came a little more into power and obviously he would be next in line, he changed his tone. So obviously, the, you know, the crown prince did not like any of that. And they're saying that for something, a hit or something like that to have been taken out against him, it would have had to been ordered by the crown prince himself. That's what leads to all of this international intrigue now and what happened and why was he ordered to be killed or captured or abducted or something. One of the the updates now is that they're saying that Saudi officials are preparing some type of report to acknowledge that Hashoji, his death was the result of an interrogation that went wrong. They're still saying that things can change in this report. It's not solid yet, but that's kind of what we're hearing now. Right. So this is a CNN report. And what's really striking about it, if, if this comes out to be the case, if, if they do report that indeed Khashoggi died while in Saudi custody, first of all, you know, let's not forget the Saudis originally said that he was fine. And that he left. So it shows that apparently they lied from the beginning. And if they now say, well, we only meant to interrogate him. We didn't mean to kill him. It was an accident. I guess that's not out of the realm of possibility. It's something that President Trump almost seemed to indicate that it's the type of story that he would accept. And it's not impossible. I mean, because, because the studies, although they do have a history of perhaps trying to coax people to come back to the kingdom or rendition them or kidnap them. They don't really have a history of killing people. If he dies because of harsh interrogation techniques, let's just say, that's something pretty serious. It's not like they were no, just, trying to, just trying it's to question him. Serious. You know, this takes it that step further. And where's the body? One of these people that apparently went in had a bone saw. That's why they think that he was dismembered. And the president has made Saudi Arabia one of our allies in that area. The reports are that Jared Kushner is very close friends with the crown prince also. And, you know, they're trying to open up the area to business and things like that. So I don't know if it would put a halt to it, but it would really severely impact what's going on there. This is what's extraordinary. I'm, I'm being told, though, that like inside Saudi Arabia, people are a bit frustrated with this because they're saying the Saudis have stood with the United States through so many different things. We cooperate with them on every level. Why should this one guy, this one incident, scuttle all that. And there's no indication that the, this administration is prepared to, by any means, end its relationship with that. I mean, it's not even, I don't think any administration would necessarily do that over right. over this. But you have to remember, this isn't just any other opinion writer or journalist. I mean, this guy is very prominent. He knew people, many, many people in the U.S. foreign policy community. He wrote for a very powerful newspaper. And also, you know, frankly, like when it comes down to it, often when you have a single face or a single name, that often captures the imagination of the public right. more than when you say a thousand people were killed today in this war, you know? <laughs> so it's become a very emotional issue. I know members of Congress 
Congress are very, very upset about this on both sides. I mean, they're really mad about yeah. this. And we're, we're still waiting for any type of evidence. They're saying that Turkey might have a lot of evidence, but they're not sharing any of it just yet. And yeah, a lot well, of people the are... Turks are not the most reliable narrators <laughs> right. either. So you have to be really careful with everything they say. And a lot of people are making something out of Khashoggi's Apple Watch, saying that he set it up to record and it went back to the cloud and to his iPhone, which his fiance had. And there might be some type of recording of what that interrogation sounded like. Yeah, but the other theory on that is that Turkey wants that story out there because they don't want to admit that they have the Saudi consulate wired. Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're going to have more streaming options, sure, but you're going to be paying for them. And so I think what the future really looks like is everyone has a streaming bundle, and then those bundles will again have to consolidate so that consumers don't have to shell out more than what they were paying originally for cable. Joining us now is Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios. The race to own the future of television is intensifying. Mobile and streaming companies are announcing all sorts of new programs and services that are actually trying to come out next year. There's billions of dollars at stake with this. Younger people are ditching traditional TV. I don't think traditional TV is in danger of going extinct or anything like that, but share some of these numbers on how young adults are watching television now, consuming all this media. Traditionally, you had pay TV packages that you bought through your cable or satellite companies, whether that be Verizon or Comcast or AT&T. And they would be, you know, roughly $100 a month. And you would get hundreds of channels with them all the way from your big broadcast networks to these niche little tiny channels like, I don't know, ESPN3 or something like that. (laughs) Well, what's happening now is that A lot of especially younger people who are so used to digital experiences where they can hit pause on a show, they can fast forward, they can binge watch it without commercials. They don't like the experience that they're getting with regular TV where you have to sit through really outdated commercials and there you have to wait for something to go through a whole show. You can't fast forward. And so they're not buying it anymore. Instead, They'd rather pay for either what are called the guinea bundles, so just cheaper versions of live TV channels, or something like a Netflix, which has really taken off, where they can pay just something like $10 a month, $14 a month, and get hundreds of television shows and movies that they can watch and binge at their leisure. Some of these numbers are interesting. 60% of young adults in the U.S. say that the primary way they watch television is through these streaming services on the internet. By comparison, only 31% say they watch it via cable or satellite subscription. That's twice the number that are using their phones and tablets and other things like that to consume this media. And I think there's a distinction to be made, and we touched on this in a piece for Axios.com, which is that you have some people who look at the fragmented TV landscape and they say, hey, the reason younger kids don't like to watch as much TV is because their nose is in their phone. And what they want is TV or video that they can consume on their phone, you know, mobily shot with vertical orientation, fast production cues, etc. Kind of like the stuff you would get on like a Snapchat or Instagram. Then there are people who are saying, look, I know that young kids love mobile video. But at the end of the day, if a young kid watched watch Game of Thrones or a new TV show, they're not going to sit and watch Game of Thrones on their phone. They do want to sit in their living room and see it on a big screen. So you have two different strategies. You have the Snapchats and Instagrams of the world who are trying to really win you on your phone. And then you have the bigger companies like the AT&Ts, the 
HBOs who still want to own you on your regular TV. Let's talk about some of the big players on mobile. Then let's talk about some of the big players on all this subscription stuff. Snapchat and Instagram, YouTube, obviously one of the biggest ones. It's been huge for years. The big new player that hasn't launched yet, but everyone's talking about is this one called Quibi, which is being launched from a bunch of Hollywood execs. It's meant to kind of rival like a Snapchat. And then the other ones that are more streaming focused, the types of things that would compete with like a Netflix or a Hulu. There's one that's being built by Disney and that's set to come out late next year. It'll be family friendly content. The last big one I think that's beginning to gain traction or that people are beginning to talk a lot about is Hulu. Disney owns 30% stake. Fox owns a 30% stake because Disney's buying Fox. They now own the majority of it. So it'll be interesting to see how that one evolves. But again, Hulu is really far behind Netflix. Hulu has something like 20 million subscribers. Netflix has 125 million. Netflix came on the scene and they were doing a lot of movies and have now transitioned into all sorts of original programming, TV shows and movies. You're going to have choices all over the place and it's going to be tearing you away from the traditional TV cable bundles. You know, the other thing to remember is that for a really long time, there was a reluctance for TV networks to own their content and just keep it to themselves. They wanted to distribute it far and wide on Netflix and Amazon because they figured, well, we just need the most eyeballs. Well, now, especially because so many networks own Hulu and they're starting to build their own services, they're starting to pull their content off of those services. Notice some of your favorite Fox shows are no longer on Netflix. Right. There's a reason for that. They want to make sure that the way that they can undermine some of their competition is by keeping their intellectual property, keeping their content proprietary to them so that if you want it as a consumer, you can only go to them. And, you know, while a lot of people think that content like Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad is what's luring people, when you're a family and you've got little kids, you really want that Disney content. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of families invest and buy that package. It's going to be interesting, and but there will be no shortage of things to watch now. So it's going to be crazy how it all shakes out. Sarah Fisher, media reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Audiences definitely want this movie ticket subscription service, basically going to your movie theater. So movie fans are loving it. And theaters definitely want to do this, too. Cinemia is really hoping that for these smaller art houses and smaller chains, they can turn to them to use their tech to get in on the fun. Joining us now is Jason Garacio, senior entertainment reporter for Business Insider. We're going to be talking about the MoviePass competitor, Cinemia. They want to help movie theaters start their own subscription services. I think this is actually a really good idea. It's a smart move to help navigate this type of product that people do want. They I, they do want these subscription services, and MoviePass was such a hit, but their business structure just did not really allow them to survive. What is Cinemia trying to do that's different from MoviePass? One of the things they're trying to do is this new venture called Cinemia Enterprise. Basically like a turnkey movie subscription service for any movie theater across the globe. So you would use their tech basically to do what they're doing, what MoviePass is doing, and what the big chains like AMC and Cinemark are doing, which is a movie subscription service. Through your movie theater, you can price it any way you want to, a monthly price, an annual price. Pretty much they are giving you everything 
to do. And of course, they're going to take a little piece of it, whether it be through a service fee or through the amount of monthly subscribers that that theater will be taking in from the service. But you're right. Audiences definitely want this movie ticket subscription service. It's like a Netflix, but basically going to your movie theater. So movie fans are loving it. And theaters definitely want to do this too. Tsunami is really hoping that for these smaller art houses and smaller chains that they don't have the infrastructure for it, they can turn to them to use their tech to get in on the fun. I think people a lot of times go to the movies based off of geographical location and then interest-based stuff, kind of like you said with those smaller art houses that play specialty movies and things like that. So if you're always going to the movie theater that's down the street from you because of a geographic thing, this is perfect for that theater chain and for those customers that want to keep that relationship going. And then, as you said, with the art houses and things like that, I mean, you know, they're always playing specialty movies, themed things for whatever the month is, Halloween movies for October, things like that. And a subscription service that way would also benefit those customers as well. This is nothing new in the art house world. They've always done membership programs to keep that theater going because for a lot of times, these places are through nonprofits or just, they're just getting by on their own. This is kind of an elevation of that. I've talked to one source that's within the art house community, and their hope is that maybe Tsunemia will understand that they're also looking for those annual membership donations or entries into their funding. So the hope is, is maybe the app can work around their needs. So not only it being a monthly ticket option, but maybe through the app, it can also be something through an annual membership on just what that art house does as a whole throughout the years. Right. And it fosters a great relationship between Cinemia and the movie theaters. Whereas, you know, MoviePass was just trying to get so many people to be part of their service that they were almost a force to be reckoned with by the theaters. Remind us real quick, though, what was Cinemia doing before this? Because they had a similar MoviePass type thing also. They've been doing monthly subscription plans just like MoviePass. Their latest one is a unlimited plan, which because MoviePass had to drop theirs because the service was losing money because it was so popular, they are now the only service now that will give you that unlimited per month that MoviePass has. And so they're, they're the only ones on the block now. They've been in a lot of, they've been all over the globe before they came into the U.S. And obviously with U.S. being kind of the largest movie market, they wanted to be here. So they've gradually gotten to a point of popularity now that MoviePass wanted right from the beginning. It's just going to be a matter of time to see if audiences are going to be into this service as much as they were at MoviePass. It seems like it's starting to, but this is more of extending an olive branch to the industry that MoviePass wasn't really that keen on or just wasn't successful on doing. They really wanted to bulldoze their way in. It kind of... uh, didn't work out, at least to this point. So yeah, they're, they're taking a different tack for sure. You can look to AMC and what their subscription service just did right now. I think there was called Stubbs A-List. Their thing was different pricing structure. I think theirs was a 19 bucks a month. You can see three movies a week, but they just released some numbers. They got 400,000 enrolled members in the 14 weeks that this thing has been going on for. The goal that they wanted to hit for the entire year was 500,000. They're basically almost there. So that just kind of proves the popularity that these subscription services really have. Absolutely. And the one big difference is with the AMC one, 
that is only for AMC theaters. Right. So to your point, if there isn't an AMC down the block from you, that might not be the best one where that's why MoviePass was so popular was because you could do it anywhere. And the same with Cinemia, you know, you can basically do it anywhere. So that's really where we're at right now is you have a couple of these services that you can do at pretty much at any theater in the country. But the bigger chains, the AMCs, the Cinemarks of the world, even at the place like Alamo Drafthouse, they're trying to get their own going for their own customers and really reaping that benefit. Jason Garacio, Senior Entertainment Reporter for Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.